Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, it's good to see everyone this morning. Uh, we are going to continue on in a sermon series called Christian Knees. And what we've been doing is, is we've been looking at big Christian words, ideas, concepts, in particular some that have perhaps at times been misunderstood or misused or distorted. And we've been exploring other ways to think about it, to conceptualize it, to um, understand certain passages of Scripture in regards to these ideas. And we're going to continue this morning with what is, for some Christians, not everybody, but for some Christians, a very interesting concept. So if you were to ask me to put down a list of the top five things I'm asked about, which one of my favorite parts of being a pastor and being a professor is, you know, students, former students, people, even people who don't go to our church will email me like, hey, what do you think about this? There was a top five list that I was putting together. On the top five would be the topic of, or the word that we'll look at this morning, predestination. And usually the question gets framed like this, do you believe in predestination? And now I'm kind of like a words guy. I, I'm kind of like a linguist, and so I, I kind of always want to be more precise. Where it's like, what does that mean? Do I believe in predestination? Like, do I believe that people believe things about predestination? Like, there's a Greek word that gets translated as predestined in most of our English Bibles. So I believe you have to do something, right, with that word. I believe there's some kind of concept there. What you're asking is, what kind of understanding do I have, right? What do you believe about predestination? And there's two big different options when it comes to predestination. Some of you right now may have all these concepts locked in, and you might be ready to rock and roll. And others are like, I don't know what this is about, right? What is predestination? Um, it is, for some Christians, and usually when someone says, I believe in predestination, what they mean is they believe in this version of understanding these words in Scripture. It is this belief that God basically chooses who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. A little self-explanatory. He picks your destiny, and he does it before you do anything, predestined. So you're fated. It's very deterministic. Um, so there are some passages in Scripture that says this happens before you do anything. There are other passages that say it happens before creation itself. So the idea is that it's not because you were a good person or a bad person that you end up being saved or being judged or damned. It's just something that happens. Some people are chosen. Some people are not. Now, this is a very divisive idea. If you've never been exposed to this, it might strike you as very, very odd, kind of offensive, hard to kind of understand. And then there are other people who have been convinced that this is true and this is what the Bible teaches, and it becomes for them like a very, very important thing. And they're like, this is just what Scripture teaches. Um, in my own life, I've changed my opinion about this topic. So 10 years ago when I started preaching at the church, I had a different opinion about it. And in fact, the very first family I ever ran off from this church was about predestination. Ironically, me preaching what I don't agree with anymore. If only they could circle back eight, eight years later. And now that I've changed my mind, so, so people who believe in this have a hard time. It doesn't seem natural, right? So you have to be like, well, look, this is what the Bible says. It's not me trying to like it or not like it. I'm just trying to be true, right? Well, now that I've changed my mind on predestination, now people are like, you just say that so the people will like you. Well, ironically, now the people who believe in that version of predestination don't like me because I've changed my mind, right? So no matter where you land, there are going to be people who disagree with you. Um, 
And, and what I want to do is we've talked about this issue at the church before, but we've never done it, I think, out of a certain passage. So I want to look at that passage this morning, um, and it's Romans 9. So if you have a Bible, open up with me to the, the chapter um, 9 in, in the book of Romans. There are a handful of really important passages when it comes to this idea. Romans 9 is probably the most explicit. It's the toughest to kind of grapple with, um, particularly if you land or I land on this issue. I think usually in the past we've, we've worked on the issue out of Ephesians chapter 1, which is also a very important passage for this. But it's a little bit more explicit and a little bit tougher to deal with in Romans 9. So I thought, let's have fun this morning. And let's see what we can do um, out of Romans chapter 9. Um, we can't read all of it, and we can't even talk about all the things that we'll find just in the small passage we'll look at. But just for our purpose this morning, let's just read a short little passage. We'll pick it up in verse 18, and we'll read through verse 24. That's probably one of the more popular parts of this for the argument. So then, he, speaking of God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's the basic kind of concept. He's just referred to Pharaoh's heart being hardened. So so God picks who he has mercy with and picks who is going to have a hard heart, not going to respond to him. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And in fact, that's the first thing we would say to a concept like this. Right? If you were told, look, God's just going to pick who he wants to pick, you say, well, then if I'm not picked, how is it my fault? Right? How can I be damned or judged? Right? How can I be at fault for something that was really not my choice? I mean, it happened before um, I was even in the picture here. And he's got a response for you if we keep reading. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? He says, shut your face, okay? <laughs> who are you to answer back to God? you going to sue him? you going to take him to the Ninth Circuit of Appeals? And hope to get a favorable hearing there. And this is, you know, again, it's true. One of the best things about being God is you get to do whatever you want, right? I mean, that's like kind of the prerogative of God. If God had chosen to do something in a certain way, regardless of how you or I feel about it, we can't, we can't right? There's no, there's no arbitrator we can go to. There's no contract we can work out and see what the, the, the footnotes say about this. If God had chosen to do this, who are we to, to, to answer back to him? He goes on, Will that which is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, here's the question, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath for his destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. The, the larger overall picture you would get from someone who, who might be like a Calvinist would be a theological term. We might label someone who has a, a kind of a harder view on predestination here, more surface-level reading of this text. Here's how they would spell out this picture. God's ultimate purpose in creation— I'm just representing a position here, okay? You'll see I'll, I'll kind of push against this. But here's how they would frame it. God's ultimate purpose in creation is to display his glory, display his beauty, his attributes, his power. And to do that, they've said, you have to have people who experience judgment. That part of God's character and nature, that part of his power and ability has to be displayed. And so some people have been chosen and prepared beforehand to be vessels, he says, of destruction. And this shows his wrath. This shows his power. And then they'll say, in fact, it 
kind of also highlights his mercy in a sense. How, how might we understand his mercy if not for the fact that we have an opposite example? What happens to those who, who haven't received mercy? Now, for, for a lot of people, this kind of idea raises a lot of questions. For some people, myself included, when faced with this kind of concept, you might start to ask this question. What does it mean to say that God is good? If God has picked beforehand, decided beforehand, not based on the choices of people, that a certain group of people were going to be judged, were going to be damned, would not receive mercy. And in fact, if you really think about it, Christians believe only those who have faith in Christ get to experience the life of the Father, given through the Son and the Spirit. And if you look at percentages, right, that's most humans. It's a small percentage of people who've responded to Christ in faith. So you would, you would have to kind of come to the conclusion that a lot of people, maybe more than not, right, have been destined. They were put on this path regardless of their own, their own choice. What does it mean to say that God is good or that God is love? Only some people experience his love in this manner. For others, there are questions like, why, why then do we pray? If, if everything is destined, even down to our salvation, what, why do we pray for God to do certain things? If it's all been preordained, why do we pray for people to receive salvation or to find Christ? In fact, why would we evangelize? If God's chosen, this person's in, that person's not in, why am I going to these people, right? What, what effect does it have? Either way, they're going to get in. Why am I preaching if it's already chosen? I mean, why am I not sleeping in right now? Why am I going to appeal to you to make a decision? Why am I going to appeal to you to to be obedient and be faithful? It it brings up questions of of mission and free will and purpose and fairness and justice and, and God's nature and character. Now, I don't think this is what the scriptures are getting at when they talk about this topic of predestination. And I want to even try to show you, even with this passage, Romans 9, even the passage we just read, if you look at it a little deeper, it doesn't say what it seems to be saying so clearly just on the surface. Which is, look, you're the clay, God's the molder, he's the potter, and the clay can't talk back to the potter. So like everything in the Bible, we can understand it more if we keep reading. Most of our misunderstandings in the Bible You've heard this a lot from me. It's like, it would all be solved if you would just keep reading. Like you read this one verse, and you put it on a poster, and you develop a whole weird theology around it. It's like, well, if you would read that, I mean, the very next verse says, like, that's not true, right? I mean, if you just keep going a little bit. Context is everything. What is around these, these verses? What is around this passage? So the context of this passage we just read is the book of Romans. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And if you break down the book of Romans, what you'll find is there's a series of connected passages. And Romans 9 is part of one of these passages. So Romans 9 through 11 is an argument. In Romans chapter 9, he begins a question that he answers at the very end of chapter 11. Now, it's a very complicated argument. It's a very confusing argument. It's hard to follow. Even today, after lots of study and feeling like I got a pretty grasp on most of this, I'm not sure I can tell you exactly what he was getting at at the end. I can just kind of pretty confidently say, like, it's not this, whatever it is. It's, it's, a, it's a hard road to follow, but it's, it's part of a larger argument. 
So the first thing you're going to want to do when you're looking at this passage in particular is you're going to not want to make a judgment on any idea just based on a couple of little verses. It could be the case that what Paul is saying in these verses is setting up an argument he's going to knock down later. If you know that 9 through 11 is one argument, you might go looking for a summary of his conclusions. Like, does he ever get to the point? And is the point the same as the things we read at the very beginning? I do this preaching sometimes, right? I mean, if you just listen to the first five minutes of my sermons, you might come away with the wrong idea from what I'm trying to get at. I might be representing a position that six minutes in, I'm going to start to knock over. But if you just listen to the five minutes, like, well, that's pretty convincing. Yeah, now I'm on board. Particularly when someone's making an argument, you always want to want to look at this big picture. Where does he land? And we'll look at that, where he lands. Um, the first thing, though, I want to see where he begins. What is this all about? He starts talking about who he has mercy on, who he doesn't. Vessels made for um, destruction, vessels made for mercy, all for God's glory. If you look at the very beginning of chapter 9, he starts off with this big problem, this question he has. And whatever Romans 9 through 11 is about, it's primarily about this. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, verse 1. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul's very upset here. This is one of the most emotional um, texts we get from the Apostle Paul. He says, I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. Why? For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The problem that Paul identifies in chapter 9, and that he's going to try to solve and come up with an answer with toward the end of chapter 11 is the problem of the Jewish people's reception to Jesus the Messiah. It's the problem that Jesus, as the Jewish Messiah, God's promised king, was largely rejected by God's own people. The earliest disciples were Jewish people. Paul, though the apostle to the Gentiles, is part of this very quick movement in the early church where very quickly most of those who called themselves Christians, who put their faith in Christ as Messiah, weren't Jewish. They were Gentiles. Now, this is maybe not a problem that keeps us up at night, right? We're probably not like, ah, oh, what what's going to happen about this? But imagine you were a Jewish person, and you had put your faith in Christ, and then you looked out at all your family, and they'd all missed the boat. And then you look back in history and it's seen promise after promise after promise to these people from God to bring them rescue and deliverance, to give them this king, to save and redeem them. And then this king finally comes and none of this happens for them? You might have a question on your hands. Is God's promise, has this been invalidated? Are God's covenants not true? Has, has God been unfaithful to his people? Why are, they, why are they missing this? And for Paul, this is so personal. He says, I'd switch places. If you could do a one for all, I would cut myself off. From, this is strong language. I'd cut myself off from Christ if the Israelites could get on board. Whatever Romans 9 is about, whatever Romans 10 and 11 is about, it's not primarily about an abstract theology of individual salvation. It's an answer to this question. What is God doing? 
what does God updo? What does it say about God and God's promises that so many of the Jewish people rejected Jesus as the Messiah? Now, if we take God's choosing of the Israelites as our example for understanding what it is God does when he chooses people, it does serve us well, even outside of this historical question. So there are passages elsewhere in the scriptures, like I said, Ephesians 1, where Christians are told they've been chosen in Christ. They received God's blessings and promises in Christ. In much the same language that the Israelites got in the Old Testament. But if we look at how the Israelites were chosen and what they were chosen for, we'll see again, it's not just about salvation. When you look at the Israelites, when you look at how they were chosen, why they were chosen, what you'll see is they were chosen for a purpose. So when God goes to Abraham, the father of the Israelites, the, the patriarch, the patriarchs, and he chooses Abraham, does he choose Abraham so to exclude the rest of the world? He comes to Abraham and says, I pick you. Out of you, I'll make a great nation. You will be my people. And then in Genesis 12, Three, repeated over and over again throughout the Old Testament, there's a purpose given for this choosing. Why does God choose? So that through you, all the nations will be blessed. Whatever God was doing when he was choosing the Jewish people, whatever it means to say that the Old Testament Israelites were God's chosen people, it does not mean they are chosen so that everyone else in the world is excluded. In fact, this sets up a theological principle you'll see over and over and over again throughout all of Scripture, which is that almost always God's no's serve the purpose of a higher yes. So if God chooses the Jews, then Gentiles, everyone else who's not a Jew, a necessary corollary is he doesn't choose them, at least for this purpose, right? But that no to them actually serves a higher yes to them. Throughout the Old Testament, it's through the Jewish people that all Gentiles will all come to salvation. They'll all come and hear my word. They'll all come and serve me and receive the life that I'm giving. The Old Testament Israelites were blessed, but they weren't blessed just for themselves. They were blessed to be a blessing. Now, if we, again, were to think that they're just chosen to be chosen, it's just an abstract salvation that they receive, then we've really got to think through the problems that that might create. And for some of us, we might not have ever really wrestled with these topics. But, but I met a gentleman who was wrestling with them very personally once. So it was a few years ago. It was a Sunday evening. I was at a sushi place, um, sitting at the bar, not drinking. And <clears throat> my memory's not great of that night because <laughs> la sushi. Um, no, there, was a, there was a Chinese gentleman there, and we, we struck up a conversation. And got around to like what you do. This was before I knew not to tell people I was a pastor and blurted out. He kept talking to me anyways, though. But he was like, I have a problem with, with Christianity, with the whole like Judeo-Christian tradition, if you will. And I was like, okay, I mean, that's what you're here for. Shoot. And he goes, I'm Chinese. And I can trace my lineage back. And he goes, if I were to believe, you know, the scriptures or what I've been presented by them, it would mean that God ignored my people for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. At best, the past couple thousands of years, we've been invited to the table. But what about before that? I mean, we have these history books. I can tell you which, which part of this I was involved in, my ancestors were involved in. And you're telling me out of all of the human beings who, who were alive and who have lived, 
God went to this small group of people, and to them and them alone, he revealed himself. And to them and them alone, he offered mercy and life, the ability to interact with him, to receive his, his gifts. Now, we might go, maybe not. We might not have great answers about how God interacted with people who weren't the Israelites way back then. Or we might go, we know enough about God to be fairly safe in saying, it's probably not what he did. He probably didn't wall himself off to all of humanity. And then we're just lucky we were born on this side of the cross because now the invitation's open to everybody. And in fact, no, if you go looking in the scriptures, it was never, that's never the case. I, I was trying to get across that, man. I was like, I see where you're coming from. And I've never really thought of it that way. And, and I appreciate that. But from my reading of the scriptures, even the very earliest, right? It was never about excluding other people. When God chooses, it, it actually almost always enlarges the circle. Some of the other examples, he, he mentions Isaac and, and Esau here. If you go back and you really dig into these Old Testament stories, God consistently chooses the surprising choice. And again, it's almost never to exclude the regular choice. It's to enlarge the circle. He chooses Isaac, not Esau. But if you go read the story, Esau and Isaac are reconciled. It's not to kick Esau out. God's choosing almost always, and particularly, especially, yes, with the Israelites, was for a larger purpose. His no is serving a, a bigger yes. The, one of the biggest mistakes we can make is, is, is thinking of predestination or election or choosing language and start to take it out of the context of the Israelites' vocation as God's holy people and put it into this abstract vacuum of individuals being saved. That's never what it was about. That's not what it's about when you find it in Scripture. It's a big mistake to, to mistake God's choosing of Israel for a specific vocation for God's choosing individuals for salvation. They're two different things. One's addressed in the Scriptures. One is foreign to the Scriptures. It may or may not be something we can talk about, but it's not what they were talking about. The other thing to notice here is that when the Israelites are chosen and when they wrestle with this question— Notice that it's talked about in terms of corporate language, communal language, not individual language. Now, you do have some individual examples given in Romans 9, again, Isaac and Esau, Jacob, Pharaoh's mentioned. But in almost every case, those individuals, even in the context that these verses are quoted in, represent a nation. God chooses large groups of people. Again, he's not choosing them for salvation, but even when he chooses, he's not choosing Sally versus Joe. He's choosing a group. And his main choice in the Old Testament was the Israelites for the purpose of bringing his grace and mercy to the rest of the world. Now, even in the Old Testament, while it is true that most of the Israelites were born into being an Israelite, there was a way for you to walk out of that community, to be cut off from the promise. And even in the Old Testament, that's not talked about a lot, doesn't happen a whole lot, there was a way for you to enter the community, to become an Israelite if you weren't born an Israelite, to come into God's promise. So theoretically, at one point in your life, you could have been outside of God's chosen people, and then because of choices you made, situations in your life, you could have come into God's chosen people. Again, if we wanted to expand that out into our life as Christians, and what we might say in like Ephesians 1, we say we've been 
chosen in Christ? We might say, maybe it's less about God choosing Sally versus Joe, and more like maybe God choosing teams. Like, instead of um, you'll be on the, the winner, you'll be on the loser, maybe God says, look, the, the team in the red jersey is going to win. Now, not Houston, okay, don't. The team in the red jersey is going to win. The team in the yellow jersey is going to lose. And then you get to decide, perhaps, you have some control over what jersey you put on. I think that is probably a little bit better of an analogy to get at what is happening. In Ephesians 1, there's these pronouns, and we, we oh man, we miss out on pronouns so often in the New Testament. Uh, English is just such a, um, we have such a deficit when it comes to, to pronouns. So in Ephesians 1, it, it uses you a lot. You have been chosen in Christ. You have received God's promise and inheritance in Christ. Before the creation of the world, God had chose you. And we read that as Westerners, and as a Westerner, I go, huh, pretty cool. This is about me as an individual. Michael David Skinner, before the creation of the world, God was making a list of his team. He put me on there. And then you've got to go back and notice, no, it's, this is not an individual you. It's a plural pronoun. You plural, y'all. We solved it in Texas. The Bible translators haven't gotten there yet. Y'all have been chosen. And who's he talking to? He's talking to a community, a church, a worshiping community, people who place their faith in Christ. I would venture to say Paul doesn't know the names of everybody in the church at Ephesus. He doesn't have a roster there. He's not checking his statements and be like, no, actually, it's not true because you are there, but you're not actually there. No, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty inclusive you. Who gets to say they've received these promises? Who gets to say they've been chosen in Christ? Well, those who are there. Those who are worshiping, those who have placed their faith in that community, those who have entered into that community. Now, even when you look deeper into the context of some of these things, um, we don't have a lot of time, so I'll just pick one of these to look at. Um, let's look at this, this metaphor that's so powerful in this passage of the potter and the clay. Um, this is an Old Testament metaphor. So for Jewish people, they would have said, we know this theme, right? We've heard this song. This is one of our favorites. This is all throughout the prophets. God compares himself to a potter. I don't know if you've ever done this, thrown at a wheel, and his people as clay. He's trying to make them into that which he wants them to be. And in the passage that we read, it seems to be used in a very deterministic way, right? If God decides to make you into the piece of clay that goes thrown in the trash, who are you to be upset about it? But humans are people, not clay. We're animate, not inanimate. And the metaphor breaks down a little bit. And in fact, if you go back to the Old Testament, it never really works that way in the first place. So you can flip there with me, or I can just read it to you. I want to show you in Jeremiah 18, one of the big places where this metaphor comes from, how it's used. We'll just read the first few verses here in Jeremiah 18. Watch though. See, is this deterministic, or is this actually like the opposite point completely? The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. Jeremiah the prophet going to Israel, God's chosen people who have been disobedient, is about to get a metaphor at the potter's house. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hands, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Now we get an explanation. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, 
Can I not do with you as the potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and it does evil, not listening to my voice, and I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. Notice that the metaphor of the pot and the potter, the clay and the worker, is actually enlisted in the Old Testament in the exact opposite direction of a deterministic view. It's not that God goes to this clay or the nation and decrees beforehand what they will do and turn out to be. It's that the potter is reacting to what the clay turns out to be. And so if the clay, because of some defect in it, it's not put together right, it's not the right mixture, or because it's actually humans and not clay, and we're rebellious and wonders and doubters, if it doesn't turn out quite the way it was supposed to, here's what God says. Just like the potter, I'll reshape it. I'll put it back together. It'll, it'll turn out the way I want it to turn out. And in fact, he then lists two very conditional things. He says, if I make a judgment against the nation, I'm going to tear them down and destroy them, and they repent, I won't do it. Or if I choose to bless and build, and they turn, I don't have to do that either. It's conditional. It's God reacting to the choices of a people. It's God saying, even though my chosen people might reject me, I'll still have everything serve my ultimate purpose. Even taking into account the good or bad decisions of people in front of me, I can work things out providentially toward the ultimate goal. And I think indeed this is what Romans 9-11 through 11 is ultimately about. This question of, of what happens, what does it mean that the Jewish people had rejected Jesus to a large extent, I think gets somewhat answered in Romans 9-11. through 11. If we go looking for a summary of the argument, we might find the closest thing to it in chapter 11. If you flip to chapter 11, we'll just look at a couple of verses here at the end. Let's ask this question. Where does Paul seem to land? He's given us the what if. What if God chose to do this? Well, I mean, he could. We, you can't complain about it. I mean, you can't. It's not going to do any good. But is that where Paul lands? Some are vessels of destruction. Some are vessels of mercy. Maybe God had chosen the Jewish people, but not in a good way. Let's see where he lands on this question. After a very complex argument, he gets to the end of this in chapter 11. In verse 11, so I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Here's his, his, here's his beginning of the answer about this Jewish people question. He says, look, what God is doing, like a potter reforming the clay, is he's taking their rejection of the Messiah, and he's going to use it to bring in Gentiles, and then he's going to use the Gentiles coming in to bring his people back. There's going to be a full inclusion, he says. Let's, let's look at a couple of the verses. Verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, many of us are, <clears throat> I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, a 
partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Paul seems to end up at a place where he does not say, I guess that's what happened, that what if happened. God chose some for destruction. I guess the Jewish people who rejected Christ were just chosen for destruction. He actually goes full circle and ends up right here saying, all of Israel will be included, will be saved. Who right now are rejecting him. Now what a Calvinist will have to do, someone who reads Romans 9 and just takes that at a surface level reading, it's still have to say, well, all doesn't mean all. It's hyperbolic. All means God's chosen people, the remnant, the secret that he elected before creation. And in fact, in that interpretation, all actually means like, not very much at all. I mean, it's a minority. Most of the Jewish people have rejected Jesus. So you're not just saying, okay, all doesn't mean all, it's a hyperbole. You're saying all actually means the exact opposite. It means not very much at all. And let's keep reading. It keeps going in this direction, and I guarantee you it's going to get more and more uncomfortable for us. In verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that the mercy shown to you may also be the mercy they receive. And look in verse 32 here. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on, what's the word? All. Now again, maybe Paul doesn't understand what these words mean. And he just very recklessly throws this word all out. But he seems to not land in the place where he set us up in Romans 9. Where he says, maybe, what if some were consigned to disobedience for destruction and some we're consigned for mercy. He lands and he actually says, What? All were put in the disobedient camp so that all can be in this mercy camp. If you follow the argument of Romans 9 through 11, however complex it is, and however many questions you still have, and I still have, it doesn't end with your idea of God's mercy being tight and defined and exclusive. It actually ends with the most universal language you have in the New Testament. It's uncomfortable for most Christians who don't believe every human being will be saved. Only those who place faith in Christ will be saved. Because in Romans 11, by the time he finishes this, he seems to throw those distinctions kind of out. All were put in disobedience so that all would be saved. How many Israelites will be included? The full inclusion. And he ends with this, this poem. Who can, who can observe the rich wisdom knowledge of God? Who can understand his glory? This is the most ironic part of this to me. You get to the end of his argument, and you're not scared that you might not be included. People actually get scared that everyone might be included. I mean, so this is usually the question I get now. Like, well, so how many people do you think will be in hell? I think if you work out the logic of salvation, the bigness of Christ's work on behalf of humanity, those are the right questions to ask. Even if you don't end there, I think in Scripture, Romans 5 does this. Romans 11 does this. In Scripture, it gets to this. It goes, well, who can be outside of God's love? 
not what small group of people will receive God's love. It's who could possibly conquer Christ's act of mercy and righteousness on behalf of all human beings. The moment we're uncomfortable because we, we're scared God doesn't love us or doesn't love enough people is the moment we've taken a 180-degree turn away from the logic of the gospel. The logic of the gospel seems to always push the boundaries more open. Always say, you're going to be uncomfortable with this, but maybe it's bigger than you can imagine. Maybe it includes people you can't imagine it includes. Maybe if you're in it for the us versus them mentality, you're in it for the wrong reason. So even if Romans 9-11 was just about individual salvation, I would argue it does not end the way that some people would want it to end. You might have bigger questions after you follow this train all the way to its destination. Now in Christ, the scriptures say you and I have been chosen, Christians have been chosen. I think theologically this is an important principle. I think God's first and foremost, his primary decision, his election, is Christology. It's about Christ. God chooses before anything to be for us in Christ. Radically for us. God chooses for anything to be with us in Christ. Radically with us in Christ. This, I think, where that team metaphor works. How has God chosen to bring his own life to that which is not him? Christ. That's his choice. In Christ, you find the life of God, eternal life. You find the love of God, the status as beloved. In Christ, you find purpose and meaning, a vocation. You'll share that life and love. So who, who might then sit back and say, I've been chosen? It's those who find themselves in Christ. It's those who put their faith in Christ. It's those who are worshiping Christ. It, it doesn't take away your decisions. If anything, it might actually elevate the importance of your decisions, the responsibility you have, the impact you can make. Election in the scriptures, I think, is Christological. It's primarily about Christ. And we find ourselves relating to the, the concept in terms of how we relate to Christ himself. And then also, it's almost always doxological, which means it's always always in the context of praise. Very rarely ever do you see this, this concept of predestination or God choosing one versus the other in a way that is supposed to be a warning or supposed to be scary or supposed to make you think twice. It's almost always in a, it ends in a poem. It ends in a worship song. It ends with this very personal praise about how glorious and majestic and wise and beautiful and loving and blessing the God of all creation is. I know many who this idea of predestination for them has, has kept them up at night and it, it's, made them, it's made them worried that maybe they're not in. And what a scary thought. I'm trying my best to, to follow Christ. I'm not perfect. I, I, I have doubts. I fall a lot. But I'm, I'm, I'm really walking down this path. I'm really placing my faith in him. And what if, what if, I, what if I get up there and I, I'm just told I wasn't on the list? Or what if, what if my kids aren't? My parents, my brothers or sisters. I don't think, though, that 
there's anything in Scripture that would ever make you have to question or wonder whether someone who, who has their faith in Christ, who seeks him, will one day be disappointed by like an angelic bouncer at the gates. In fact, even if you're a Calvinist, which again, I once was, they would say no one ever chooses to turn to Christ who's not already been chosen. The fact that you're putting your faith in Christ is proof putting, they would say, of this way before any decision God made. No one ever comes to Christ for him to go, actually, I didn't want to invite you. Like so many things about our faith, the table is such a great object lesson. And perhaps, I mean, the more I say scripture, the more I talk about it, the more I kind of understand why Jesus wants us to do this over and over and over again. At the table, we learn that there's no fence. Here's what I can tell you. In a minute, I'll invite you up to the table, and not one of you will come for our elder to go, sorry, your name's not here. It's not going to happen. I promise you, no fear. It will never happen. At the table, you never come for Christ to go, oh, this body and blood, well, it's not for you. No, who's the body and blood for? It's for those who are at the table. Who will come to the table? Well, that's, that's, that's why we're inviting you. That's why we're pleading with you. That's why we're remembering the grace and the love and the salvation of God in Christ. The table is this, this writ large example of what God in Christ has done for humanity. And at the table, it doesn't serve to shorten the list and exclude more and more people. It actually expands the boundaries. The table's not going to be occupied by all the people you thought were there. You're going to show up at the table, and there's going to be people who, who are, have different political ideas than you, different backgrounds than you have, have some different lifestyle choices than you have. You're going to come to the table, and you're going to say, well, I'm not sure that person's good enough. And you're going to think, dude, like, well, am I, I guess I'm not good enough either. I guess that's the whole point of the table. But the table always surprises you with how large it is. At the table, we're always personally surprised with how gracious God is in Christ for us. No one puts their back against the table and press with themselves. Hope you can make it. At the table we go, look, I can get here. If I could come to the table, there's nothing, there's nothing stopping you. If Christ holds out his body and blood for me, guess what? You can take it too. And God's love has been given to, to us. It's not so that we might then just boast that the fact that we have God's love. It's so that we can go out into Sugarland and say, look, it's, it's here for you too. And not just so that us in Texas can say, we've got it. We can go, no, it's here for, for all of you. To any extent that we've been chosen or identified, it's not to exclude other people. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's so that we might go and be vessels, illustrations, conduits of God's love and mercy towards other people. So God does some choosing in the scriptures. 
There's some passages that Paul writes about. He may be interpreted in lots of different ways. But we come to the table to discover that God has chosen you. At the table, you take on and receive and affirm your identity as God's beloved, his son or daughter united in Christ. At the table, you take on your vocation as God's child to be a light and a priest in this world, to be his holy people, to be ambassadors of Christ and the gospel. And I pray that as we continue worshiping this morning, as we come to the table, our hearts would be filled with praise and joy and that we would once again accept and affirm our identities and accept and take on and be challenged and convicted by our purpose, our vocation, the job that that Christ has privileged us to, to have and to participate in with him.